Hi, and welcome to The Rock Podcast. We have the privilege tonight to hear from Pastor Bob Cole, who is a songwriter, worship leader, and personal friend of The Rock. For the next few Wednesdays, he will be sharing with us through the book of Psalms. Let's join Bob now in tonight's Wednesday night study. Places, everyone. Work with me, people. This will be a lot more meaningful if you turn in your Bibles to Psalm 84. I think we're going to have it up on the screen, so even if you don't have your Bible, you can still follow along. There are some wonderful, wonderful things in this short psalm. I think in my top two or three favorite scriptures in the entire Bible, are in one of them is in this psalm. And then another scripture that accidentally transformed my entire life and my, my music ministry and everything was changed by one scripture that we're going to look at tonight. So I'm anxious to share it with you. But let's pray first. Lord, you know what we need. And uh, if I knew what we needed, I still couldn't meet that need. So we just bow our hearts before you. We are open hearts for you to write your truth upon, Lord, and I pray for the anointing of your spirit upon the teacher and the hearers as well. I pray that this would be a transforming night for someone here, Lord, and perhaps for those that are going to listen to the recording of it at some other time and place. Thank you for your word. What would we do without it? And thank you for your presence every time we study it. So be our teacher, we pray, Lord, tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read through, all the way through this, and then I'll give you some background. This is another one of those Psalms, like 27, that when you understand the story behind it, it just goes from black and white to HD color, and it totally, it just totally comes alive. So I, I love teaching the Psalms. I'm uh, going to be reading from the uh, New King James. I understand it's just virtually identical to the NIV. There's only really one or two words that are different. We'll talk about those tonight. Uh, This is a psalm of David. If your Bibles say a psalm of the sons of Korah, it should be a psalm for the sons of Korah. They were worship leaders. David wrote this song for them to sing as they worship in Israel. But it is a psalm written by David. How lovely is your tabernacle, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young, even your altars. The NIV says near your altar, which I like. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. I love the personal pronoun, my king and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house. They will still be praising you. Underline the word dwell if you have a pen. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. That sort of person, verses 6 and 7, as they pass through the valley of Baca. They make it a spring, literally a place of wells or a place of springs. And the rain also covers it with pools. And they go from strength to strength. strength. Each one appears before God in Zion, meaning that eventually they get where it was they were headed. O Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. O God, behold our shield If you've got room, write in the word sovereign, because that's what the Hebrew means. It's speaking of David himself, the king. 
Where am I? What verse? Verse 9, thank you. <laughs> Temporary loss of cognitive skills. Oh God, behold our shield or sovereign and look upon the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand anywhere else, the Amplified Bible says. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Underline that word, dwell. It's a different word in Hebrew, and I just discovered it yesterday. I love being a word guy. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness because the Lord God is a sun and a shield. That word shield is literally shade. The Lord will give grace and glory. And here's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. The NIV says those whose walk is blameless. And we'll talk about what that means because it does not mean faultless. And of course, on this side of the cross, we have the privilege of being blameless and walking uprightly because of Jesus. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. David, being a poet and being a prophet, when he pines and when he whines, he does it eloquently. And being a kind of a poet myself, I, and being a word guy, I just love the way he phrases things. David wrote this psalm under extreme emotional pressure. And that helps me. And I understand why he's pining the way that he is. David is exiled from everything that he loves, his home, his family. He's exiled from Jerusalem. And with all of those things being said, the thing he's longing for is to worship God with, his, with God's people. And if you've ever been forced into a place where you couldn't have normal fellowship with believers, you understand exactly what David is saying here. It becomes more important to you than anything else. Even though you have God with you, even though the Lord and I are like this and we have fellowship every day, I need you. I need to see your faces. I need to sing with you. Um, it's great just being able to be with you guys for like, what is it, four weeks in a row now? One more coming up. Um, instead of just coming in and hitting once and then going a thousand miles back north where I live on my wonderful island, which I miss terribly. Oh, sorry. Did I say that out loud? <laughs> David wrote this being exiled by his own son, Absalom, who turned the people's hearts against David, tried to muscle him out as if to say, I know God made you the king, but I'm the king now. So a lot of the things that David says in here come from a broken heart. Any of you who've ever had a child turn against you, you know that there's almost no pain worse than that. And that's why God sent his son so that his children could be reconciled to him because there was pain in his heart being separated from you and from me. So David's longing is evident in here. The thing that I've been thinking, he smuggled this psalm into Jerusalem. I, I do not know how. No one's been able to convince me how. But he smuggled it in so the sons of Korah could sing it. And the thing I thought of as I was mulling this over and when I understood where the psalm came from, I realized how cool it would be if your, if your king that you love got chased out of town and all kinds of nasty things are being said about him and a lot of people are believing him to realize this is what your king is thinking. He's thinking, I miss my people. I want to be worshiping with them. Doesn't talk about, you know, missing his Mercedes or, you know, missing his pool boy or missing the great pastries they have at that little shop, you know, in old Jerusalem right around the corner from, you know, I'm sorry, I digress. He misses worshiping with God's people. Boy, I know what that's like. 
So let's pick this apart. Hopefully, I'm not going to waste any time and we'll get to spend time on the two huge, huge uh, verses in here. Well, one of them was huge for me. I suspect it will be huge for you as well. How lovely is your tabernacle. Verse 1, O Lord, written from exile. Remember, before the cross in Israel, there was really only one place that you could worship with God's people where God's presence was guaranteed to be there. Remember when Solomon built the temple, actually David wanted to and God wouldn't let him, and Solomon built the temple. God never asked for a temple. That was man's idea. God didn't say, go build me a temple. All the other false gods, you know, their prophets said that God wanted a temple, but their gods were not real gods, and the real God said, I don't need one, and besides, if you build me one, I won't fit. <laughs> All the universe can't contain me, so I'm not going to fit in your building. But I love in First Kings, yeah, first part of First Kings, or Second Kings, I get those confused. I think it's First Kings. When Solomon dedicates the temple, and God comes, and, and Solomon says, well, just Solomon and God, after all the hoopla and the hoop-de-doo, and Solomon and God are alone, and Solomon says, what do you think about the temple? And God says, well, nice temple, didn't need one, uh, but I'll tell you, I'll make you promise. I won't fit here, I can't live here, but I promise you I will meet anybody that comes to this place to meet with me, which was an incredible honor. You know, that's true of this building as well. God doesn't live here. God lives here. You're the temple now on this side of the cross. So what David is longing for, we, I do miss fellowshipping and worshiping with God's people. I crave it. I'm starved for it when I'm away from it for too long. But I have the Lord living inside of me. David had to go to a place, and that's why that place was lovely to him. My soul longs, yes, even faints. The Amplified Bible says, my soul pines and is homesick. I love that. For the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. You know the song we sang, Psalm 42.1, tonight as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. I heard a Bible study one time. I was driving down the road, and it was it impacted me so greatly I had to pull off the road and just sit there and let it wash over me. But Chuck Swindoll was teaching the definition of godliness. And he said, churches have all kinds of ideas about what godliness. What does a godly man look? What, is, what does he look like? How much football does he watch? You know, how many times does he go to church? And what is a godly woman? Does she wear jeans? Or, you know, does she have to wear a dress? And all those churchy definitions, but Chuck Swindoll said Psalm 42.1 is the definition of godliness in the Bible. And when David says these words, David is proving that God was right when God said, this is a man after my heart. This is a godly man. He was not a straight-A student. He made some really big mistakes, but God said, this is a man after my heart. Psalm 42.1, the definition of godliness as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. If that's you, you are a godly person under construction. And that is sure my heart. And that's one of the reasons I love David. I sure don't want to copy all of his life. I want to copy some parts of it and learn from the other parts of it. But I want a heart like his. And God loves that. Verse 3 even the sparrows, I, I don't know why David really wrote this unless he's sort of whining a little bit and saying, even the sparrow and the swallow get to hang out near your altar, oh God, and here I am. I can't even go, I can't even go in and worship because of, of being exiled. Could be. It is the kind of a thing that uh, David was wont to do when he, he just bleh, he just poured it all out before the Lord. You know what? God didn't have a problem with that. A lot of God's friends even yelled at him. Of course, they took it back later, and they apologized when they realized they were wrong. But God doesn't have a problem with you being real. If you're hurting, tell him that you're hurting. He knows anyway, but the catharsis will be good for you. The relationship that you establish by going to him first, like we looked at last week, 
where we're invited to call on him. We're going to look at that next week, too, in Psalm 145. I just want to tell you a little story. I heard the last group I took to Israel, we were in that. How many here have been to Israel? Okay, a few of you. You know, in the place where Peter was restored, where Jesus said, Peter, do you love me? Three times in front of the guys, in front of a charcoal fire, Peter got to do right what he, Peter's makeup test, he got to do right what he did wrong uh, at Jesus' trial. You know that little crusader? I'm sure you guys went there. All the tours I've ever done, we've all been there. And then somebody has always builds a little charcoal file right down by the seashore, and, and you're, you're standing there, and your heart's just going, kathump, 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 because you realize this is where Jesus and Peter had that conversation, with somewhere in that area. But the Crusader Chapel, tiny, tiny little chapel with great reverb, if you ever want to sing with a group of people in there, there are sparrows and swallows all over that place, and they made their nests up by, right up by the altar. It's very un-Catholic. It's very, it's very unholy in our idea of the holy and what is holy. And I heard the reason why they don't bother those sparrows and swallows, and it's because of verse 3 in Psalm 84. Because some monk back in the Crusader days said, wait a minute. Don't chase those birdies out because King David, our King David, the godly man said, you know, even the, even the swallows and the sparrows get to hang out near God's altar. So the monk says, don't you dare chase them away. Isn't that sweet? I don't know what David was meaning. I personally think he was just feeling sorry for himself. But um, free little sermon there. No free little uh, bit of history that uh, no charge for that. Verse 4, blessed are those who dwell in your house. In other words, with you. Where you are, those that dwell with you, they're going to always be praising you. Once again, the church building is not God's house. If when you leave, he leaves. We don't come here to his house we're his house. If you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he's living in you. But when the, the language that David is using here is the, it hinges on the word dwell. We've talked about it in two Psalms so far since I've been here. It's the Hebrew word yashav. If you want to write it down and check me out, I hope you do. Y-A-S-H-A-V, yashav. It is the Hebrew word for living together in the covenant of marriage. It's the word at the end of Psalm 23 when David says, I will dwell, yashav, in the house of the Lord forever. Well, of course we will because we'll be married to him for all of eternity. And we looked at it also in Psalm 27 in that regard. So those that are in that covenant relationship with God, that they are always with him, they are in intimate fellowship with him, those people are always going to be praising him. And then there's that Selah. Nobody knows exactly what it means. It's some sort of a musical poetry term. Most Hebrew scholars say it means stop and think about that. So yeah, it's a pause, but it's a pause that involves thinking about what I just said. I've found in my life, if I have such a crummy day that there's no praise in my heart, somewhere along the line, I am ignoring the one who's been with me all day, going, what am I, chopped liver? I'm right here. <laughs> Share with me. You know what I mean? God, that God, I used to think my grandma, some of you know my grandma, I used to think that Jesus waited beside her bed all night long and, and waited for her to wake up in the morning just so they could hang out together. That's what her relationship with God was like. I remember saying, oh, I want that. You know what? He wants that too. I made a deal with him. I want the last conscious thoughts of my day to be toward you, Lord. I want the first conscious thoughts of my day to be toward you. And then I'm working on Everything in between, <laughs> you know, when I wake up, when I go to sleep. 
So those who are yashav in your house, in that kind of relationship with you, they're going to always be praising you. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you. We talked about this a lot at the men's retreat I did a couple of weekends ago up in Fort Bragg when we talked about what's a real man. You know, I told the story of a, in my first church that I pastored a young mother that I probably told this in Psalm 27 when I taught it about the young mother that wanted me to talk to her eight-year-old son because she had brought, bought him some Christian action figures to go with his G.I. Joes. And one of them was a, a little puny, skinny, red-headed guy, and that was David, and then this big, buffed-out, muscular dude with a huge sword, and that was Goliath. And the problem was her son did not believe that Goliath was the bad guy because everything he heard all day long was the biggest guy with the biggest muscles and the biggest sword, that's the good guy. And she said, this is serious. You need to talk to him because he respects you, Pastor Bob. And I thought, you know, this may be one of the most important lessons for a young Christian man to learn is what is true strength. The Bible teaches that tr the truest strength isn't, doesn't come from you. And the wisest man is the man who trusts in the one with the biggest muscles, is the one who trusts in God for his strength. Doesn't mean I don't do anything. It just means I lean on his strength before I lean on my own. I love it that this is the king talking. This, this, this really had to encourage David's friends who hadn't seen him, who didn't know if they'd ever see him again. Because here's big, strong Absalom, the son that's bigger than his own dad, muscles him out of power, sets up his own cronies, and it looks like the bad guys are winning. And here's David, the one in exile, pining for fellowship with God's people, saying, you know, you're going to be a happy man if your strength is in the Lord because ain't nobody bigger than him. <laughs> and uh, I love that about David. And then he talks about the man is blessed who sets his heart on pilgrimage, and then he uses they. He uses a plural pronoun speaking of anybody, male or female, that sets their hearts on pilgrimage. That means traveling to Jerusalem to do the things that you did in Jerusalem regarding worshiping God with God's people and all that that comprised. It is a worthy desire, but it was not without risk. Most of the people from Israel who made pilgrimage had to come all the way down the Jordan Valley, which was a piece of cake, and our air-conditioned Mercedes tour buses, it was, just, was lovely, and it just got uglier the farther south you went. And, you, and everybody was going, Pastor Bob, can we go back to Galilee? Because Galilee was just so lush and gorgeous and plenty of water. But you get all the way down to about Jericho, and it's like driving through the bottom of the Grand Canyon for like about 20, 30 miles. And then there's the pass right about where Jericho is. You start winding your way up what is it, 1,200 feet in elevation, something like that. You wind lots of switchbacks. It's interesting, the road pretty much goes where the sheep trails and the donkey trails were thousands of years ago, and it's really dangerous. That's where all the robbers, they figured you come this far, you're in a hurry, you're not paying attention, you're tired, climbing that elevation, and that's where the robbers would waylay people on their way. And what David is saying, you know, it's still a good thing. It's still a good thing to want to do that. We can't really relate to that so much. You know, if there's something really good on TV or, you know, if our cat has a headache, you know, we think we'll stay home from church. And <laughs> I, I promise to not rant on this. It's a, just a pastor thing. Every pastor I've ever talked to says, I don't get it. Nobody has to call those guys to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to go fishing. I'm sorry, I'm, that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> so verse 6 and 7, describing the people who have set, on, set them, their hearts on pilgrimage, he says, they, as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a 
my King James, New King James says spring. The Hebrew is literally a place of wells or springs. In other words, as they're passing through the valley of Baha, they dig a well. Why would a person who's just passing through, who's probably never going to see that place until the next year, why would they dig a well? Well, dig a well for the next guy that's passing through. But here's, this was the transforming thing in my life. I think I've got enough time to do justice to this. I heard Gail Irwin speak from this verse. And every time I read Psalm 84, I always gunned for verse 11. That's because that's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. And I skipped right over this. Number one, I didn't know what the Valley of Baha was. But the word Baha means weeping. And if you look at verses 6 and 7 figuratively, that's what Gail Irwin did when he taught at the pastor's conference in Tahoe where I was leading worship. This transformed me. As soon as he started teaching on taking your place of sorrow and digging a well there in some way so that you can rescue the people behind you who are going to, all of us are going to come to that valley of sorrow. All of us are. Some of us more than once. So instead of thinking about yourself and feeling sorry for yourself and having a pity party, by the way, I'm, I'm an expert at pity parties, and I've discovered this. If you throw a pity party, Satan will cater. <laughs> he'll, you got a good pity party going, he'll bring all of the hors d'oeuvres. He'll show movies. He'll show movies of stuff you totally forgot that you have to feel sorry about. He, Satan loves pity parties. How did I find that out? Well, it's just too pathetic, so I'm not going to be honest. I'm not going to tell you. But you have your choices when you're in your valley of sorrow, what you do. And you know what I love about this? David isn't just talking off the top of his head. This is what the Psalms are. David dug wells in his places of weeping, and we read them, and we receive nourishment from the same place that he did. So after the, after the teaching on this, I, I had that deer-in-the-headlights look on my face, and I went up to Gail, and I said, can I talk to you? I think God is speaking to me. I think there's something God wants to say to me through this teaching. I had never, ever really saw these two scriptures in that context. And it really struck me. And I said, Gail, what do you think? That how, what would this look like for me? And he said, well, you know what? If, if you take this seriously and you say, God, I want to take this place of weeping and sorrow that I'm in, and I want to dig wells for somebody else. I need you, so I need you to get me out of here. I need you to keep me from dying. But I don't just want to be thinking about me. I, I want to dig a well for somebody else. What would that look like for me? And he said, well, for everybody, it might look different. But he said, the Lord will tell you, especially if he's tugging at your heart, like he's doing right now for some of you. Some of you, the light bulb just went on, and you thought, oh. Now, the interesting thing about this, I had just read a book called Don't Waste Your Sorrows by Billheimer. I know Anna's read it. I don't know if some of the rest of you might have read it. So God was already tugging at my heart. And that night I went back to my cabin and I, I laid awake and I just said, God, I know you're speaking to me. What does this look like? What is digging wells for other people? And my life was filled with weeping and sorrow at that point. I'd cry at the drop of a hat. I had my heart ripped out without anesthetic a number of times and it was really looked like everything was crashing and burning. So I said, Lord, what? And of course, God was comforting me, but sometimes I'd have to hear miraculous comfort 10 times a day just to keep from jumping off a bridge. And the wonderful thing is God kept telling me what I needed to hear over and over and over and over. So I said, Lord, I need you to tell me what this is going to look like for me because if you're speaking to me, if there's a way I can get my out of this pity party, if I, can, if I can dig some wells for other people, please show me how. And it was one of those times where he spoke really loud and really clearly, not out loud, but it sounded loud in my head. And here's what he said. He said, son, write songs. 
teach Bible studies. Pass on the scriptures that have reached you. And I said, well, I am a songwriter. I am a Bible teacher. I'm not a very good one, but I, I could sure point a scripture to somebody that's helped me. He said, that's a really good start. So I said, if you want to give me songs, I'm your man. And you know what he did? He gave me an entire album filled with songs. It's on my website if you would like to check it out. Free downloads, no charge. Uh, my website is robertcull.com. There are 720 in-depth Bible studies on there and three of my albums. The album's called Whisper. And all of the songs of love and surrender and worship and praise and comfort to God, all of those songs came from digging wells in my valley of weeping. People all over the world have heard those songs. There's probably a million people around the world that sing some of those songs. And you know what? I would have been totally turned inward. I would have self-destructed. That's what self-pity does. So I, I just picked apart every, everything in these few verses, and I said, Lord, I want to make it a... I want to make it a place of wells, this valley of weeping. Gail told me something. I said, well, Gail, when I first asked him, what does that look like? He said, well, if you fall flat on your nose and you're just laying there on your lips in the sand, <laughs> dig with your nose if you have to. If that's the only way that you, it sounds like Gail, doesn't it? If that's the only way you can dig a well is with your nose, but do something that's going to nurture others. I have found that changed my life. It changed the whole focus of my ministry. It changed why I wrote songs. Completely. And go figure. God has blessed hundreds of thousands of people. I would have never dreamed that. I'd have still been stuck having a pity party all by myself. Well, me and the devil. <laughs> and all his videos. I can give you a few suggestions, but the best thing, if, if this strikes a chord with you, if you're, especially if you are weeping so much you can't see through the tears, you can dig some wells. All by yourself, you can. And I know some of you have already learned how to do that because you've talked to me. And I'm proud of you. Because self-pity is just so easy. <laughs> and the devil loves it. And it requires getting out of yourself to dig some wells for somebody else. Don't leave it to the professionals. There's a reason. First Corinthians says, Second Corinthians chapter one says, God comforts us in our trouble so that we so that we can comfort others in any trouble with comfort that we ourselves have received from God. That's one of the reasons He allows us to Go through places we need to be comforted. It's not all about you, and it's not all about me. It's to pass it on. I'll tell you something that I do in the morning when I have my devotions, when I'm home, um, and I, I have lavish amounts of time for my devotions in the morning, which I didn't have when I was, all those years I was pastoring. It's the great thing about a sabbatical. Tons and tons of time with the Lord. But what I do is when, when, and I've had some hard times in this last year, some confusing times, some poverty, some uh, heartbreak. But as God has comforted me, this is the fabulous thing about the internet and email. He'll bring 10 people that I know in other parts of the world to mind that that verse that I just read, that just pulled me out of the nosedive and saved me from crashing, that I know this is going to touch them. They'll say, send it to them. That's digging a well, folks. That's digging a well in your place of weeping. I, I could say a lot about Facebook, where people just exhibit all of their we weeping, and I'm not sure that's all bad, but that doesn't dig wells for anybody. You might get people to commiserate with you, and they'll, then they'll spew all of their weeping. But it's much better if you can dig a well. And I, I don't know why I never saw this before, but it truly transformed me. 
put my energy into not just surviving the valley of weeping, but digging a well for the next guy or the next gal that's going to come through because there will be somebody that comes through. If you're a parent, oh, you've got the, just the, you've got the very best opportunity to do that because you've got whole generations that will eventually listen to what you have to say. <laughs> I personally think that your kids aren't going to fully appreciate what a good parent you are until they're about 40, and then they start realizing what a good mom and dad they had, but that's just my opinion. So those that pass through the Valley of Baha and make it a place of wells, dig a well, and then the rain comes and fills the pools. You don't have to dig a 100-foot well. Any pool in the desert when somebody's dying of thirst, any pool, one word, one scripture, a phone call saying, hey, I'm praying for you, could save somebody's life. It's happened to me. For me, there were times when that one thing, your pastor wrote something at the, the worst day of my whole life. He carried around a card, and it was, it was in your little minivan, wasn't it? You carried around a card to mail to me, and then you kept forgetting, and you kept forgetting. But see, he's anointed even when he doesn't know he's anointed, because when he finally did remember and go, oh, man, I was, God told me this, and he sent that card. It arrived on the worst day of my life. I still carry that card around with me everywhere I go, and that was 13 years ago. Saved my life. Thank you for digging that well, brother. And these people who do this, who don't disintegrate in self-pity and bitterness, those people, verse 7, go from strength to strength. How did David know that? Because he found it out the way you and I find it out. You know the whole thing, it's more blessed to give than to receive? That was not an exaggeration. It's true. Getting out of myself, digging a well for somebody else so they'll be refreshed. I just get stronger and stronger and stronger. And, oh, there's so much. I could teach a whole hour just on that one verse, but we haven't even got to the really good one yet. So, But that was for somebody, wasn't it? Yeah. I had a feeling when, I was, when, when the Lord laid it on my heart to teach Psalm 84, I thought, this is going to transform some people's lives like it did for me. I pray that. And then when I leave, I'm going to keep praying that. Um, and what's important is not what I'm saying to you, it's what God says to you when you say, okay, Lord, how do I do this? What does this look like? It may not look the same for me as it did Pastor Bob. What does this look like? Show me. And you know what? He will. It will be transforming. I promise you. I promise you. And if it turns out to not be true, you get your money back. <laughs> and eventually, at the end of verse 7, you know what? They take the time, dig the wells. They're not just thinking about themselves. They're not in a hurry to get through the valley of weeping. You know what? They still get to Zion. <laughs> they still wind up the place that they start. And of course, this makes it just a beautiful analogy of our walk, our pilgrimage through this earth on our way to heaven, doesn't it? Um, man, I wasted. I'm an emotional guy, and I'm hyper-analytical, which is a really bad combination. <laughs> and... I wasted so much time feeling sorry for myself. And um, I tell you, my life is so rich when I dig wells for other people. I'm totally blown away by what God did with the Whisper album. I've done a whole bunch of albums. I've done seven solo albums. I played on about 60 other ones. Nothing has even come close to reaching as many people as that Whisper album. Wells in the valley of Baha. Verse 8, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Every time I see the phrase God of Jacob, I snicker because I can understand God being the God of David, God being the God of Abraham, God being the God of Moses, you know, the good guys. But Jacob was a crook. Jacob, there's no redeeming thing about Jacob that I can find. 
He just never did really change his spots. But God was faithful to him, and God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And every time I see that phrase, the God of Jacob, I just think, then there's hope for me. <laughs> yeah, I'm a slow learner. Yeah, I've had my rodent moments in my life. And God still calls himself my God. Blows me away. So David says, right after, I don't know if it's coincidence, but right after he says, oh, God of Jacob, he says, Selah. Think about that. <laughs> if this was being written today, he would say, the, oh, God of Bob Cull. And people go, what? Him? Oh, God, behold our shield. That phrase, our shield, was a Hebrew phrase for the king, the sovereign. God was their ultimate shield, but the king was hired to protect the nation. Oh, how it got so weird to where the king started using the nation to protect himself. But that was the king's place. So when David says, God, behold, our shield, our sovereign, my Amplified Bible says, the king as God's agent, and look upon the face of your anointed. There's something so tender in that because David is writing this from exile. He's saying, nobody knows where I am but you. You see me? Here I am pouring out my heart to you, Lord. And he starts pining again. A day in your courts is worth Thousands anywhere else. I told you already that when I lived in the state whose name I will not mention, and I tried every church in the area, and a lot of them, nobody would even speak to me. Some people frowned at me. Of course, I am a little weird looking, and they probably thought I was a hobo or something, you know, <laughs> sneaking in. But there was a Calvary Chapel in our state, but it was three hours' drive south where I was, way up on the island, in the upper right-hand corner. <laughs> every Sunday and every Wednesday, I drove three hours each way just to worship with those people. So when I read this, um, I think, Dave, I, I hear you, dude. I feel you. you know, I know what you mean about being in the courts of God with God's people and how one day there's worth thousands any place else. I would rather be a doorkeeper. This is the king talking. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked or tents of wickedness. Now, I had to underline this word dwell. I just found this out yesterday. I love it when I think I know something and God will nudge me and says, maybe you don't. Look up the words. And so I, I thought this word dwell was yeshav. And David was just saying, I'd rather be doorkeeper in the house of God than to be married to a whole bunch of wicked people and live in their house. But that's not what he's saying. Here's the word. If you want to look, look it up, please do. It's a colorful word. It's the word doer. It's spelled D-U-W-R, doer. Or in Scotland, they would say doer. Here's what it means. It means to go around and around in circles. So you're stuck there. And so euphemistically, it was the word for dwell. It meant to be stuck. You're just not going anywhere. You're just going around and around in circles. You're digging ruts. And, and so then all of a sudden, this just takes on a completely different flavor. And also the word doorkeeper. The Hebrew word literally means to be tied to the doorpost. You know, tied to the door. David said, I would rather be tied to the doorpost, even though I'm the king, than to live with the wicked and just go around and around in circles and never get anywhere. And I say, Dave, me too. Because the Lord God is a sun and a shield, different Hebrew word than the word shield just a few verses earlier. And this word means shade. And, 
Any Hebrew would have understood that from their history, the only way they made it 40 years across the wilderness was because at night when it was freezing cold and dark, God was the sun to them in the, in the terms of the Shekinah, the, the pillar of fire. And in the daytime, the pillar of cloud didn't just give them guidance, it protected them from being burnt to a crisp in that hot desert sun. So God was both things. The Lord will give grace and glory. Let's look at verse 11 and a half. I think I've got enough time to do this. Thank you, Jesus. It's a promise, but it's a promise like Romans 8, 28. That is a conditional promise. No good thing with, will the Lord withhold from those who walk uprightly, or the NIV, from those whose walk is blameless. Charles Spurgeon in his commentary, which I just read today, he said, don't you dare stop halfway through that verse because it does not apply to you. You can't expect God is just going to give you every good thing if you're cavalier about your sin, if you don't care what his law says, if you're just living for yourself, you don't qualify. But Jesus changed everything for those of us who are not straight-A students. And that Jesus enabled, through our faith in the cleansing of his blood, he enabled us to be viewed as blameless before God. You can be the worst rat sinner in the world. You could be Jacob. But if your sins are cleansed and forgiven, from God's perspective, you are blameless. And the word uh, uprightly in my New King James the Hebrew word means to be blameless before God. That's why the New King James and the NIV are both correct. Those whose walk is blameless. Well, I'll tell you, I, there, I only know one place where I can live my life. That's what my walk is. It's my daily life. I only know one place where I can stay blameless, and that's in Jesus. I keep my accounts short. I want my sin to hurt me the way it hurts God. And after a while, if you don't take your sin seriously, you know what happens? You start thinking God doesn't take it seriously, and he does. So that's the qualifier. If I'm keeping my account short, if I, if I want to see my sin the way God sees it, and I am staying in Jesus as best I know how, then the fabulous, unbelievable promise is no good thing will he withhold. Boy, I've pondered that. I've thought about that because I have, he's withheld a whole bunch of stuff from me that I thought was good. But I, check me out on this. Think this through. This is a ponderable thing. It might even be a wise thing. If God, if you're walking uprightly before God as best you know how to do, and he is withholding something from you, there can only be two reasons. Number one, it's not a good thing. Or number two, it's not a good thing now. Timing. You know when you're God and you're perfect and you know everything? Timing is everything. It truly is. You know what age-appropriate gifts are for children? My mom didn't. My mom, who, <laughs> my mom who abandoned me on my fourth birthday, I think in, by age nine she started feeling guilty or maybe she just did something about it. I never saw her again. Well, I did see her one time. She came to a concert I did, but uh, she was never my mom again. But at age nine, she sent me every nine-year-old boy's dream. She sent me an archery set that would kill people. <laughs> it, would, it would kill deer. It would kill moose. I loved it. You kidding? I wanted to right away go out and kill something. And I remember when I unwrapped the present, I remember my dad had tears in his eyes. He said, you know what? She forgot how old you are. Because no mom in 
right, her right mind would give that kind of a gift to a nine-year-old boy. You wonder why God doesn't give you some things that look good or maybe some things that he gave to other people? It could simply be a matter of protection for you or somebody else. I know this is true for me. And it could just be a thing of timing. Maybe you're not ready for it yet. Oh, but I am, but I am. Well, you know what? You're going to argue with the smartest brain in all the universe, the one who made you. Maybe the gift that you want isn't ready yet. Timing matters. So just rest your heart in this. If, you, if we will trust him, this has rescued me. This has rescued me from answering my own prayers many times. And you know what? If you answer your own prayers, this is, this is important. If you answer your own prayers, even if you do the same thing that God was going to do, you still got ripped off because you didn't let God do it. You didn't see what he would do. And I know people that live their whole entire life answering their own prayers, and they think you're exaggerating when you talk about God meeting your needs. And the reason is they never let him do that, so they don't know. That's a free sermon there. No charge for that. <laughs> Timing. Age-appropriate gifts. Just ponder that. That might be the solution of why, God, haven't you done this thing? I've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And he's, it's the answer might be, you know what? It's just not time yet. Well, it was, you kidding? Ten years ago it was time. And he said, well, not according to the God who loves you perfectly and knows everything. It wasn't time. Because if it was, you'd have it. If he's withholding something, it can only be one of two reasons. Either it's not a good thing, or it's not a good thing yet. It's not a good thing now. I'll tell you one other story. I want to tell another kitty story, because this seems to resonate with some people. My kitty was my son, and my best friend, the only consistent thing in relationship in my life for about 16 years, and when we lived on the farm, he had, he had seven acres of pristine wilderness to pillage and, you know, terrorize and everything, just do what cats do. One day I came home, and right 50 feet away from him, right in my driveway, was a, a huge fisher. You don't have them out here. They're a, they're a northeast thing, Canada and New England. But a fisher is like a wolverine. It's, a, it's a, a very fierce predator. It scares people. And this fisher was about 50 feet away from my cat. My kitty was sitting in front of a mouse hole. He had no idea he was about to be lunch. So I honked the horn. I had the good sense to not get out and try to chase it away because it could have taken a bite out of me. And he went off in the woods. But the, then I thought, you know what? I can't let my kitty boy go outside anymore. I called the fish and game. I told them what I saw, and they said, yeah, we know he's there. We've set traps, but he said, this is a smart one, and he's the biggest one we've ever seen. He was four feet long, counting his tail. And they said, he's taken dogs in the neighborhood. And I said, I caught him stalking my cat, and he said, then I'm not betting on your cat. <laughs> and thank you very much, so fish and game protector of the innocent. So you know what I did? I called my kitty to me, and he was sitting by that mouse hole, and he just absolutely did the Ronald Reagan thing, you know. What? What? I, are you talking to me? He heard me. He just didn't want to come. So I went, I picked him up, and he did the thing that all toddlers know how to do, and that is increase their molecular density. You know, just all of a sudden, they're 10 times heavier than they were before you picked them up, and every muscle in your body goes and every claw and every tooth. And he just, and I picked him up and he swiped his claws right across my face. Only time he ever scratched me. And I was crying because he does not, did not know how close to death he was. And so blood is running down my face and tears are mingling with the blood. My wife came out and she could not figure out what was happening. And I'm trying to say, I just wish he knew I was protecting him. 
And you know, God did one of those God things. He just flashed me to a number of conversations where he had, in order to protect me, had to spoil my fun, had to restrict my parameters. And I didn't see the blood and the tears coming down his face either. I didn't see what he paid to protect me. All I wanted was what I wanted. I had no idea. So if God is withholding something from you, only one of two reasons, possible reasons. If you can think of something else, then please come tell me. If you're walking uprightly before him as best you can, only one of two reasons why he would withhold something. It's just not a good thing. We just think it is, but from his perspective, it's not. Or else it's just the timing issue. Those of us that have answered our own prayers and paid the price for it have learned to keep our little mitts off of things and just trust our wise, loving, heavenly Father. And you know what? God, we love it when God, we say when God answers prayer, it, he answers prayer when he says yes. But you know what? No is also an answer. You know what? No is a good answer. If you're God and you're perfect and you're pure love, no is just as good of an answer as yes. Think about that one. Oh, Lord, help me to remember this. I, I still have to go back to this psalm. This, I have a new study Bible from the one I had for 45 years, and you couldn't even read the psalms in my old study Bible. There was snot stains and tear stains and underlines. And, and anyway, sorry I said snot in church. Please forgive me. <laughs> Oh, said it twice. <laughs> Verse 12, and we'll close. And I just love, this is David speaking from one of the worst emotional trials of his entire life. And listen to what he says. Oh, Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. He's talking to himself as well as to you and me. You know what? You're going to be a happy camper if you just put your trust in the Lord. I wanted to read you Isaiah 26, 3. Some of you have it memorized. I used to, I had a big poster on my wall. It, changed, it transformed my thinking habits. Isaiah 26, 3 says, God will keep in perfect peace the man whose mind is steadfast because he trusts in him. That's what David's saying. Okay, I know things are not the way I want them right now. I can't be around the ones that I love. A crazy man muscled me out. I'm still God's anointed. The story's not over till God says it's over. Oh, I yearn to be with those people. Imagine you're, you're singing the new song that the sons of Korah bring for the worship time, and you realize this is your king talking. This is the way your king feels about you. This is the way your king feels about God. I think the no good thing will he withhold from him whose walk, who walks uprightly. I truly think David was also promising that to himself. It is the truth. Even when the bad guys look like they're winning, it's not over yet. God isn't going to withhold the good thing that he already gave you, David. Just walk uprightly before him and wait for him. Trust in him. Let's close in prayer. Oh, I need this stuff, Lord. I know a bunch of us do. Thank you for this fabulous promise. Better than that, thank you for providing Jesus so that we would qualify for this promise. Thank you for that wonderful scripture in 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 that, the, that our whole spirit, soul, and body will present, be presented blameless on the day of Christ and the one who called us is faithful and he will do it. We are counting on that, Lord. I pray for those that are going through the valley of weeping that they would not forget I thank you, Lord, uh, for helping me to not forget that I can do something other than just sit in that valley. I can dig wells for other people. So show us how to do it.
Thank you for how you've fulfilled this transforming promise in my life. Keep doing it, Lord. I still have a tendency to get stuck in self-pity. That's so disgusting. It's so insulting to you because you're so good. So bless these dear ones. We leak, so we're going to need you to remind us of this stuff tonight and tomorrow and from there on out. We love you, Lord. We aren't very good at it, admittedly. We're getting better. Bless these dear ones, I pray. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.